Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's just before noon on Saturday the 31st of March 1934 and the ocean liner Orsova is about to steam for London from the number 7 wharf at Woolloomooloo in Sydney. Margaret Viner, strikingly beautiful, with golden hair and violet eyes, tall, slender and chicly attired, is saying goodbye to her mother and friends before setting off on her grand overseas adventure. The past two weeks for the Girl Truth newspaper calls Sydney's lovely loveliest have been filled with farewell lunches and cocktail parties. These happenings dutifully chronicled in the society columns, whose scribes also report that the glamorous model-turned-actress now hopes to star in the talkies when she gets to England. But when a writer for The Sun speaks with her during those farewell weeks, it's for a broader article seeking female opinion on the question of which decade in a woman's life is best. Margaret, who's 19, says, quote, From 20 to 30 must be the best years for any woman. It is when she is young that she gets the greatest fun out of life. In the 20s, she is strong and well enough to make her own enjoyment and is not dependent on outside influences to make her happy. As the Orsova leaves Sydney Harbour that autumn afternoon, Margaret Viner's hopes for the best decade of her life revolve around getting off the boat in London and getting into the movies. Yet, she won't be on the ocean liner when it docks in Southampton. Even so, fate will have it that she gets the greatest fun out of life anyway. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the two-part episode, Australia's First Supermodel. 
From Jennifer Hawkins and Gemma Ward to Megan Gale and Miranda Kerr, these days we're accustomed to Australian beauties making it big overseas on the catwalk. But more than 50 years before Time magazine dubbed our Elle McPherson The Body, our Margaret Viner made history by becoming our first celebrity model. Or should I say celebrity mannequin, because back then that's what women who paraded the latest fashions for designers were called, and it was the clothes they wore that were called the models. By any name, Margaret Viner was a hit. Like Elle, Megan, Miranda and others who came much, much later, her international success came with an astronomical pay packet, perks befitting a princess and access to the playgrounds of the rich and famous. But she was also far more than a pretty face and figure, enjoying a successful acting career and proving to be a witty writer. More than anything though, Margaret Viner seemed to simply have a talent for living and she'd need that strength to endure the hardships of the Second World War and to emerge from the long shadow cast by that conflict. Robert Viner, Margaret's paternal grandfather, was born in Warwickshire, England in 1859. As a young man, he studied law and was reportedly quite the sportsman, said to have played rugby at an international level and to have held the world record for the mile for three years. In 1891, he emigrated to Australia, becoming a grazier in New South Wales with two properties, one in Armidale, where he lived, and the other in Gyra. Married with three sons, Robert was civic-minded, involved with Armidale's hospital, its shows, schools and other institutions. He was also rich beyond his land and stock holdings, his investments including large interests in silver mines and oil fields. Such wealth alone was enough to make Robert Viner an important man in Australia at the end of the 19th century, but he might have been even more notable in his new homeland if he'd used his title, Sir Robert Viner. A baronet, he was a direct descendant of the Robert Viner who'd been a banker and goldsmith to King Charles II, even crafting the crown for the so-called Merry Monarch's coronation in 1660. In return for his services and friendship, not to mention the absolute fortune he loaned the kingdom, King Charles II invested him with a baronet in 1665 and Sir Robert Viner a decade later became Lord Mayor of London. Half a world away and a quarter of a millennium later, his descendant Robert Viner didn't dine out on this lineage. And, remarkably enough, given Australia's fascination with all things titled and royal, it was scarcely mentioned in newspaper reports of his activities. In March 1913, Robert's handsome eldest son, also named Robert, married beautiful society socialite Ruby Nicholson, and on the 3rd of December the following year, the couple welcomed into the world Margaret Layla Viner, the daughter who'd be their only child. During Margaret's childhood, the family divided its time between Armidale and Sydney's eastern suburbs. While her grandfather was a man of means, Margaret's father got into financial trouble and was declared bankrupt in mid-1924. Despite her parents' circumstances, Margaret, likely thanks to her grandfather's generosity, attended the elite Ascombe School in Edgecliff. Before she was even in her teens, Margaret was being noticed for her physical appearance, with Truth newspaper commenting on the 5th of June, quote, 
the slim and very youthful Mrs Robert Viner out on a morning shopping with daughter Margaret, who, by the by, promises to equal her mother in good looks. Young Margaret enjoyed tennis and dancing and was around this time name-checked by newspapers as being in attendance at a few charity balls in the city. She also loved the theatre and a big excitement in Sydney in early 1928 was the arrival from England of actor-playwright Dion Boussicot's theatrical troupe. While critics and audiences enjoyed the company's light comedies at the Criterion, what they didn't know was that two of the young stage players, married couple Hugh Williams and Gwyn Whitby, had a personal as well as professional reason for spending more than a year in Australia. According to Kate Dunn, Hugh Williams' granddaughter, he had in London been having an affair with Tallulah Bankhead, the American film star with the legendarily voracious sexual appetite. To save his marriage to Gwyn, Hugh's mother and stepfather engineered it so their son and his wife joined the troupe on its Australian tour. Margaret, then 13, couldn't know any of this. She just thought Hugh was handsome and talented and charming. What she also couldn't know was how their lives would become entangled a decade in the future. Young Margaret was clever as well as pretty and on the 5th of April 1929, at age 14, she had what I believe is the first piece of her writing published in the Sydney Morning Herald. It was a letter remonstrating against the recent shooting of a kookaburra in the Blue Mountains because, hungry after a bushfire, the bird had eaten someone's carp from their pond. Dismayed at the foolishness of avenging a, quote, aristocratic goldfish, Margaret argued, I have seen cats, rats, etc. raid fish pools and take young chickens from yards, but all these can absolutely be protected by a few shillings spent on wire. Our own boys raid orchards. We protect the orchards, not shoot the boys. After Ascombe, Margaret attended Doon Finishing School for Girls, also in Edgecliff, which was run by Miss Jean Cheriton, affectionately nicknamed Cherry. Years later, speaking to Hal Porter for his 1965 book, Stars of Australian Stage and Screen, Margaret would say Cherry gave her, quote, some of the most useful lessons I have ever learned or will ever learn. I owe her a great deal. While Dune's curriculum included literature, French, art, music and drama, the school's real education was in the genteel social graces. As the Australian Women's Weekly later described it, quote, To be a Dune girl was to bear a hallmark that was practically an open sesame to Sydney society. Its students have been prominent social figures even before they made their official debuts. In September 1930, Margaret's striking portrait appeared in the Sun newspaper to accompany the announcement that she had a role in a Dune school play being staged to raise money for the Sydney Hospital. With her cool gaze, sophisticated attire and stylishly bobbed hair, she looked like one of the 20-something bright young people of aristocratic London rather than a Sydney teenager. After Margaret left Dune at the end of 1930, she made her social debut and then got a junior sales girl job in the frock department at David Jones. 
her beauty made her a favourite of celebrated Sydney photographer Harold Casno, and his portrait of her gazing through a rain-streaked window was printed full page in the April 1931 issue of The Home magazine. Another of his photos of her, a stunning profile shot, was given similar prominence in The June issue. While the early 1930s in Sydney, as elsewhere in Australia, saw a substantial proportion of the population doing it very tough as the Great Depression worsened, for many in the upper middle class, life went on as usual. For Margaret, this meant dancing at charity balls and city hotspots like Romano's and the Australia Hotel. Not that working by day put a dent in her nighttime socialising either. On the 7th of May 1931, the Sun's gossip columnist reported seeing her hurrying out of David Jones during her lunch break, noting, quote, She was looking her usual flower-like self in beige tone tweed and beret. The fact that she had been out dancing until the early hours and had punched the Bundy promptly at nine did not detract one whit from Margaret's smartness. No doubt her youth contributed to her being fresh-faced despite late nights, but Margaret was also aided by her policy of not touching alcohol, a stance that would be referred to with some regularity in press stories about her through most of the 1930s. In her job at David Jones, Margaret also caused a minor stir with some high-spirited antics. Smith's Weekly's gossip columnist noted on the 23rd of May 1931 that the young shop assistant had, quote, last week with all the confidence of a trained mannequin paraded in dance pyjamas before diners in the cafe. Margaret's very beautiful, but what a pity she knows it. Smith's writer, known as Kitten, had a column called Catty Communications and from this time on she'd frequently have the claws out for Margaret. Still just 16, Margaret made her professional stage debut in mid-July 1931 in a show, fittingly enough, called My Lady's Dress. That was just a bit part, but Margaret's face became much better known in Sydney around this time when she started appearing in advertisements for hats, face cream and in Ardeth Cigarettes' high-profile 10 to 1 campaign. In September, she was cast in the J.C. Williamson production of the comic farce When Nights Were Bold, appearing alongside another young Sydney beauty, Patricia Minchin, who was another favourite of Harold Casnow. Sydney Mail's review of the show noted that Margaret, along with Patricia and other supporting women, were all, quote, charming and took their parts admirably. While the Sydney press was generally supportive of young Margaret, Smith's catty communications took every chance to be snide about the budding star and socialite. Having seen her at a party, this is how Kitten described her in the 15th of August 1931 column. Quote, The violet-eyed Margaret Viner wore her new frock of beige and shaded orange organdy. Certainly the frock is well made, but how foolish for a striking-looking lass to dress herself up like an advertisement for an orange drink. Here's an item from the 21st of November 1931 column. Poor Margaret Viner, who sold her pretty face to advertise cigarettes, is everywhere these days. That is, on the hoardings and show cards. Since Margaret dances frequently at the Australia, her large picture in the lobby must annoy her. 
But worse still, her blue floral Georgette frock banded with grey fur is hailed as her 10 to 1 frock. From the 5th of December 1931 column. Talking of mannequins, the work seems to have gone to Margaret Viner's head. She can't stop talking about it and frequently produces a paper with her own photograph advertising hats and asks which one you like the best. She's awfully important these days. And a week later, observing she was without friends at a Christmas party, Smith's kitten wrote, Isn't it a pity that, in spite of her good looks and perfect dressing, none of the really smart society girls seem to want to know Margaret Viner? That wasn't true, and it was ironic that Smith's would be the one Australian publication who'd soon be most desirous of knowing Margaret Viner. Having just turned 17, Margaret got her biggest break to date in mid-December 1931 when she was cast in J.C. Williamson's revival of Flora Dora at Her Majesty's Theatre as a member of that musical comedy's famous Sextet of Beauties. After Flora Dora, Margaret was next cast in J.C. Williamson musical comedy Blue Roses. Smith Weekly was there to take her down a peg, saying that she was, quote, decorative if nothing else. Margaret would tour with Blue Roses, heading first to Melbourne. But that wasn't far enough away to be out of the shade Smiths loved throwing her way, with the 4th of June 1932 Caddy Communications column noting, quote, Margaret is very homesick and is missing her mummy terribly. Mrs Viner, who looks young enough to be Margaret's sister, was Ruby Nicholson and, in her day, even a greater beauty than her daughter. Six weeks later, Margaret was back in Sydney in the nick of time to rush her bags to the boat that had taken the Blue Roses company to New Zealand. Smiths now anticipated she'd be doing some gold digging there. Quote, Apart from her looks, Margaret should do very well in the shaky isles, for if they are hot for anything over there, it is birth and family. Filthy Luca isn't the open sesame there as it is here, and isn't Margaret's dashing popper Bob a lord or an earl, sub Rosa? So as Bubby, that was Margaret's mother's nickname for her, is armed with the right letters of introduction, she should put it over pretty big, for, to use a metaphor, my dear, there are some nice plump trout in the matrimonial waters over there who were born right into the tartan, so to speak. Margaret was back in Sydney to appear in another show called Hold My Hand from the 1st of October 1932. Smith's captured her opening night triumph this way. Quote, Margaret Viner made a brilliant and flower-laden entrance into the Cavalier after the first night of Hold My Hand on Saturday night. She looked really ravishing, but, my dear, she had forgotten to take off her stage makeup and was literally covered with grease paint, mascara, etc., She explained that she was in such a hurry leaving the theatre that she quite forgot to remove it. But surely she's been on the stage long enough not to forget a little thing like that. What didn't make the gossip columns early next year was the disintegration of the Viner household. Margaret's father, who had inherited his father's title after Robert Senior's death in 1930, had been behaving in a less-than-gentlemanly fashion by having an affair. When Margaret's mother Ruby found his mistress's love letters and confronted him with them in March 1933, Robert packed his bags and left. 
Margaret was surely heartbroken by this development, but she did have her career to distract her, and around this time landed a part in the stage production Our Miss Gibbs and spent April and May playing in Melbourne, where Table Talk newspaper noted she was much in demand at dances. By then, Margaret had her sights set on being on screen as well as on stage, and while in Melbourne, she made her film debut in comedian Pat Hanna's 1933 early talkie, Waltzing Matilda. Given Margaret was only mentioned in passing when the film premiered at the end of the year, indicates that she only had a bit part. Around this time, Margaret also offered her headshot to Ken Hall's Cinesound Company, with a casting scrapbook held by the National Film and Sound Archive containing the photo and the notes, quote, Height, tall, figure, slight, hair, fair, eyes, blue, very pretty. Though very pretty and with some dramatic experience, substantial female roles in Australia's early talkie industry were few and far between, and the rest of 1933 and early 1934 offered Margaret only more modelling and the usual whirl of nightclub dancing, charity lunches, garden and cocktail parties. If Margaret wanted to make it in the movies, she'd need to go overseas. And so it was that on the 31st of March, 1934, a few weeks after appearing in a David Jones fashion show called Autumn Glamour, she boarded the ocean liner Orsova, bound for London. As for Margaret's acting ambitions, Smith's took a final, bitchy, parting shot about her chances. Quote, So long as she didn't have to do any talking, I should think she'd be a riot. Margaret shared her Orsova voyage with her good friend Eleanor Martin, who wanted to further her ballet studies in England, where the vessel was due to arrive on the 10th of May. But having sailed around the southern part of Australia, across the Indian Ocean, up through the Suez Canal and across the Mediterranean, the girls, upon docking in Italy, opted to leave the boat and get a refund for the final week of their voyage. As Margaret later wrote, quote, then fate took a hand, and instead of coming direct to London, we got off the boat at Naples and decided to do Italy in real tourist fashion. The girls went to Capri, Rome and Florence, spending most of their money before heading to Paris for a day or two on their way to London. There, Margaret met up with some English friends and they introduced her to a charming older Frenchwoman who insisted the young Australian should accompany her to a fashion parade at the Salon of Monsieur Jean Patou. Largely forgotten today, Patou was then as celebrated as his contemporary and arch-rival Coco Chanel. Among his pioneering claims to fame were coming up with female sportswear, inventing men's designer ties, using geometrically patterned fabrics, and his expert matching of colours to his clothes and models. He was also credited with ending the short skirt flapper trend overnight in 1930 with a collection of longer gowns that set the trend for the rest of the decade. At this time, he also launched his perfume, Joy, marketed as the world's most expensive fragrance. But what Patu was best known for, and how his legacy endures today, is that, for better or worse, he revolutionised what it meant to be a high fashion model when, in late 1924, he went to New York and, in a blaze of publicity, auditioned, hired and brought back half a dozen American beauties. 
Apart from their nationality, what set these women apart was that they were taller, slimmer, less bosomy, with wider shoulders and narrower hips. Over the coming decade, Patu would continue to import such beauties. Then, in mid-May 1934, a willowy Australian who might have been made to order for him appeared in his salon with one of his regular customers. Margaret was also enthralled by what she saw that day and would later write, quote, Never before had I seen such exquisitely gowned mannequins and never before had I seen clothes carried with such grace. Once Patou had catered to Margaret's new French friend, he turned to the young Australian and asked if she would like to buy anything. Margaret said that sadly she didn't even have enough money for half the price of one of his frocks. Then he asked, Have you ever been a mannequin? She told him of her Sydney experiences. Patou asked, Would Miss Viner like to try on some of his clothes? She said she'd be delighted, slipped into some of his exquisite creations and walked about the salon. The experience was nerve-wracking. She later recalled, quote, You can imagine my feelings when I paraded for the first time before the critical eye of this world dictator of fashion. I awaited his verdict. Patou gave her a mixed review, saying, You are very beautiful, but you carry yourself too stiffly. You will learn. I can make you into a very beautiful mannequin. According to Margaret, she laughed and said, Sorry, but I couldn't consider it for I'm leaving in the morning for London to look over the movie situation there. Patu insisted she put her journey off for a day so he could offer terms and promised to make it worth her while. Margaret later wrote, quote, This was too good an opportunity to miss, so I agreed to come back the next day. As she described it, that night she talked it over with Eleanor, who went back with her to Patu's. When Patu made his offer the next day, Eleanor took Margaret aside and said, You will be mad to accept such a sum. You are worth twice as much, and to ask for it. Margaret did, and Patu agreed. She then said as part of any deal, she simply had to go to London before starting work, and Patu said we to this also, and paid for her flights and hotel accommodation. Margaret also wanted to be able to fly to London for weekends during the fashion season, and he agreed to cover those costs too. The deal was done. 19-year-old Margaret Viner from Armadale via Sydney was going to model the creations of world fashion guru Jean Patou. Her contract made all the newspapers back home. The Sydney Mail thought she deserved it, commenting on the 3rd of June 1934, quote, Few Sydney girls enjoy such universal popularity as does Miss Viner, who always remained quite unspoilt by the compliments showered upon her. The Australian Women's Weekly on the 9th of June reckoned, quote, Miss Margaret Viner is a lovely Australian girl who has won spectacular success abroad and, at the same time, set an example of what an Australian girl can achieve in a sphere few have in the past attempted to enter. And overnight, Smith's Weekly changed its tune completely. On the 9th of June, its headline read, quote, Sydney Beauty Captures Paris, Plucky Margaret Viner Wins Out. Its report included this, quote, Perhaps no more attractive girl ever left our shores, and if her success is our loss in one way, we shall gain in another, for Miss Viner's loveliness 
and modesty will be a fine advertisement for the land of her birth. Smith's Weekly, Australian Women's Weekly and other publications also reported Margaret was to command the highest ever salary paid to a model, with speculation putting it at £1,000 per week, which is close to $100,000 in today's money. That seems unlikely and typical of hype associated with star salaries at the time, but as we'll soon see, Patu was too fond of throwing money around and she could command big money elsewhere. Whatever the actual amount, it's safe to say that Margaret Viner was about to be earning a fortune at a time when the average female wage in Australia was £1.5 a week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When Margaret returned to Paris at the start of June, taking a furnished flat with her friend Eleanor Martin, Patou insisted she do nothing for that first week other than watch how his other models moved. After that, she walked for him, morning to night, with Patou demanding a different strut for every dress and not hesitant to tell her how bad he thought she was. He said she was frightful and wore an evening gown as though it was a sports suit. The aim, she later explained to Australia's Home magazine, was, quote, to make the dresses appear to be your very own. Feel that they belong to you in such a way that the women looking at them will picture themselves also living in them. The best mannequins are not those who merely exhibit clothes, but those who wear them. Margaret described part of Patou's method in purging her of habits she'd learned as an Australian model, quote, the lower portion of the back that is not how he described it, must be kept drawn in, and to illustrate his point, he used to slap the girls smartly as they paraded for him at rehearsal. Keep it in, he would say, like a dog that's been kicked. Her training, which lasted about two months, mostly comprised what Margaret liked least about modelling, standing around and being fitted for hours on end as Patou designed, altered and refined his collection, which was to comprise dozens and dozens of dresses and hundreds of accessories. As part of his process, he also had to decide which model would wear which dress, and as his new favourite, Margaret, like the American models who'd come before her, was resented by the French girls. She'd recall, quote, during the first weeks I was with Patou, I had occasionally to try on other girls' dresses. This led one day to a very distasteful experience. I was trying on another mannequin's dress when this girl, who evidently did not approve of me, suddenly rushed at me and almost tore the dress from my back. And Margaret sounded as though she was only partly joking when she said she was studying French with a tutor so she, quote, might hear the catty things that were being said about me. Initially, she worked only from 11 till 5, with two hours for lunch, but as the August fashion season approached, her workdays got longer, from 10 until 8 or later at night, with lunches served on the premises. 
Margaret did have time off, though, spending it horse riding and visiting Parisian nightclubs, where she continued her teetotaling ways, but confessed to, quote, smoking like a house of fire. She was also often in London for weekends on Patou's Frank. On one of these visits, a gossip columnist for Sydney's The Sun met with Margaret at the Cumberland Hotel, heard all about the deal, and characterised her as having, quote, outsmarted Jean Patou, the hardest-headed couturier in all Paris. The Sun's writer called her La Vina, a nickname that would become widespread in headlines in Australia, and predicted that after conquering the fashion world, Margaret would, quote, take her place as a West End star or a famous London hostess. Back in Paris, Margaret made her Patou debut on Friday the 3rd of August 1934. She'd write, At last, the great day came. The salons were thrown open and the smartest people in French society came to see us. She wore Garbo-style gowns and darling little hats and, under the watchful eye of Parisian detectives, was adorned with jewellery. She'd write, quote, I felt very expensive indeed, especially as it was found that diamonds set off my black gowns. Altogether, this first big show was a very satisfactory one for me. But Margaret was being far too modest. There were at least two Australian writers in the audience and they both dashed off breathless reports. Muriel Segal, Australian Women's Weekly correspondent, sent her series of articles by Beam Wireless, so they were printed first. Her initial report, published in the 18th of August issue, was headlined, Miss Viner's Triumph, and began simply, quote, Margaret Viner caused a sensation at Patou's opening. In that story, she detailed the fashions, but in her follow-ups, Muriel Segal put Margaret's achievement in context. Quote, She made new fashion history for Australia. This was the first occasion on which an Australian woman has taken part in the presentation of fashions at an event of worldwide fashion importance. She continued, During the seven years in which I have attended the Paris openings, I have never seen a mannequin cause such a sensation as was created by Margaret Viner at the Champagne Supper on Friday night when Patou showed his new collection to the press and style experts of Paris. The world holds no more critical fashion audience than she had to face. As well as the press, it included stylists, fashion experts from every corner of the earth and a brilliant galaxy of the leaders of Paris society assembled to pass judgment on the new collection. What an ordeal for the young Australian and how magnificently she came through it. As she floated gracefully through the brilliantly lit salons, storms of applause greeted her. Whether she wore a marvellous creation or a less striking model, the enthusiasm was sustained. It was a great personal triumph, such as none of us could recall having witnessed at any previous opening. Lest Muriel Segal be thought overexcited, Nell Murray, at Patou's for Melbourne's Herald newspaper, described the scene as gloriously in an article that saw print on the 10th of September under the headline, Australian Girl is Rage in Fashionable Paris. She wrote, 
At the supper party, during which Patu launched his new designs, a murmur of admiration ran around the stately scarlet and gold salons, packed to suffocation point as the tall, glamorous Australian made her first appearance. On all sides, there were eager queries as to her identity. Next day, all Paris was buzzing with the news of Patu's discovery. It made me feel very proud indeed of my beautiful young compatriot. Overnight, Margaret Viner had become the toast of the most sophisticated city in the world. She even had a new name, dubbed Michelle by Patou, although it was spelled Michael. French magazine Femina ran a beautiful photo of Patou and his new Australian muse standing against a moody sky. He was in a bow tie and tuxedo, hands insouciantly in his trouser pockets as she stood beside him in a boldly patterned frock, cigarette between her fingers, the both of them staring off into the future. A few weeks into the season, Australian Women's Weekly correspondent Muriel Segal interviewed Margaret who told her, quote, I was terribly nervous at first. Of course, I'm delighted that they showed their approval of me so unmistakably. I love the work, but believe me, it is work. During this week, when all the buyers are here, I am in demand all day. On parade days, Margaret and the other models arrived at the salon at around noon and started walking at 3pm, with each of them showing as many as 25 frocks that Patou had specifically designed for them. While it sounded impossibly glamorous, it was actually hard work, but at least Margaret had gotten friendlier with some of her fellow models. She told Muriel Segal, quote, This is a cosmopolitan corner of the world. The girls pick up the funniest expressions in the various languages they hear, Spanish, German, English, and typical Americanisms, and I never get over being amused at the inimitable way they bring out their most surprising phrases. Their Parisian accents make their expressions all the funnier. Often it is as funny as a scene from any comedy or farce. Yes, I love the work and I don't expect to get tired of it. There is always something new to learn, which means self-expression and self-development. And I find it all, even the hard work, very delightful. After Paris, Patou took his muse and two other models to Deauville, where in the casino there, they showed off his creations for an audience Margaret described as being, quote, the best-dressed women of French and foreign society. There, she was again a success, though she professed surprise at how many apparently fashion-conscious gentlemen were in the audience. After the shows, what she called little complimentary notes from young men were delivered to her dressing room. She recalled drolly, quote, As these flattering communications generally contained the name of a hotel and a telephone number, one was inclined to suspect the detached views and impersonal motives of the sender. At Beritz, there was again a lot of men in the audience, but this time it was an older man who sent Margaret a note. She recalled, One elderly gentleman, who evidently regretted the passing of the good old days, sent me a note which I have kept as an antidote for symptoms of swelled head. You have had great success, he wrote, but a beautiful mannequin like you would have been considered plain in the days of Dolores. The woman this rude old French bloke was referring to was Dolores, the world's first celebrity model who achieved the peak of her fame in the early 1920s. 
1934 came to a close, Margaret spoke with Mary Knight of United Press with the result that her name was brought to the attention of American newspaper readers. The syndicated piece proclaimed, quote, She is the most photogenic figure that has come here for a long time. No matter from what angle the cameras click, they get the perfect results. Margaret also said she longed to go to America and hoped to get there in 1935. Truth's correspondent also caught up with her at this time and, in an article headlined, Sydney Society Beauty Now the Idol of Paris, Margaret sang the praises of Australian womanhood, claimed that the average Frenchwoman was pretty average looking and reckoned that the British cluttered their style by adding too many accessories. She mused on the role that fate had played in her career, quote, it was chance or luck or destiny that did it, and said she didn't want to get married yet, quote, heavens no, not yet, I've too much to do. While America and the movies beckoned still, Truth Reporter also found her espousing lofty hopes for the future, quote, the craving of my life has been to do something really big and good. I want to do it not merely to achieve a personal or pecuniary success, but to satisfy my own soul, to enable me to feel that life has been worth living after all, and that I have been able to repay by making them proud those who lavished and still go on lavishing so much care upon me. I am simply inspired with one great and overwhelming and irrepressible yearning to make my mother and my father glad and proud of me. But before she did all of that, Margaret Viner went to England for Christmas and when she returned to Paris at the start of 1935, she was met by a dejected Patou. She'd write, quote, I found the poor man desolate. He had been unable to get my working card renewed by the French government and that meant I could no longer stay in his employ. A lot of Parisians were unemployed and the government was moving to prevent foreign nationals from taking what work there was, modelling included. But this was only the latest of Patou's concerns. Whether Margaret knew it or not, he was desperately in debt because the depression had dried up lines of credit and sales were down everywhere, but particularly in the American market he'd courted for the past decade. Margaret was out of permanent work in France, although Patou would still summon her for the occasional show, and so she said goodbye to her flat in Paris and spent a month skiing in Switzerland before heading to London. There, Margaret got a job that fit with her interests, social access, and droll way with words. If she'd harboured any animosity, what better way to get payback than being put on the payroll? The front page of her former antagonist carried the news on the 23rd of March, 1935, quote, Margaret Viner joins Smith's staff. To help Smith's weekly woo women readers, Margaret would each week send by airmail thousands of words of fashion and society observations from London, while also providing a potted account of her own rise to fame and ongoing fashion world adventures. In fact, many of the quotes you've already heard from Margaret came from these Smith's Weekly stories. Though Margaret's articles detail long-lost fashion trends and concerns, from the use of ostrich feathers to the rise of men's brown suede shoes, they're also witty time capsules of the months around the Silver Jubilee celebrations for King George V. Quote, 
I have never encountered such an exuberant nightlife before. Cocktail parties at seven, then dinner, then a rush round to somebody or other's party, and finally a nightclub where the jollity is prolonged to the early hours. Margaret chronicled the comings and goings of Australian dignitaries such as Prime Minister Joseph Lyons and the man who'd be his successor, Robert Menzies. In one column, Margaret would wonder why Australia didn't have its own fashion designers and in another, she'd describe the excitement of Australian girls being presented at court. Attending a London exhibition of English cooking proved particularly amusing. Quote, This week London has been holding a cooking exhibition just to prove that English people can cook. The response of the newspapers was interesting. Instead of commenting on the excellence or edibility of the dishes or even swelling with pride over the fact that there were enough cooks with sufficient audacity to make such an exhibition possible, they almost unanimously ignored the food so bravely displayed. Margaret didn't ignore the food. She observed a complicated sculpture made of sugar, a brand new tinned soup, a meal for a tuberculosis patient, and a dish made by army cooks, which, quote, seemed to me to be a contradiction of the Napoleonic axiom that an army marches on its stomach. The proper place for an army after a meal of this kind would be on its back, toes to the sky. In one week, Margaret met three American film stars, including Kay Francis, now criminally forgotten, but then Hollywood's highest paid woman, and widely celebrated as the world's most fashionable beauty. Quote, Kay Francis didn't so much arrive as make a state entrance. She's very nice, but a bit inclined to be always the best dressed woman in the world. But even in this rarefied scene, the real world intruded. A real world in which her Hitler was now officially in control of Germany and rearming. In her first few weeks writing for Smith's Weekly, Margaret was amazed to see an anti-Nazi protester disrupt a show put on by the Berlin Fashion Union at one of London's most exclusive hotels. Quote, This in the elegant and sober Mayfair. No wonder the waiters were shocked into inactivity and the band hushed. And even in fashion itself, Margaret saw political tensions reflected, writing, quote, Coincident with the world beginning to rearm, military styles seem to be coming back into favour. Gold braid has appeared on pale grey and is becoming popular. While Margaret wasn't officially linked to any gent, in one of her columns she made gentle sport of a German speed demon who'd proposed marriage on their first date as they roared around Khan in his souped-up Rolls-Royce, she did in autumn of 1935 take a three-week flying tour of Europe, Paris, Khan, Genoa, Milan, Venice, Vienna and beyond with Mervyn Vernon, a young officer in the Scots Guards who'd bought himself a new monospa monoplane. If there was a romance then, nothing came of it. At this time, the story goes, Margaret did have another admirer who granted her a special cultural honour. That is, being referred to in Cole Porter's song, You're the Top, from the hit musical Anything Goes. Name-checked as one of the great things in the world, up there with Mickey Mouse, the Mona Lisa's Smile, Lady Astor and Irving Berlin. But the thing is, Cole Porter's original American-centric lyrics don't mention her. 
However, for the London West End season of Anything Goes from mid-June 1935, P.G. Wodehouse was hired to anglicise the book and songs. I have been able to find some of the changed You're the Top lyrics, including Wodehouse putting Jean Patou into the song, but I haven't found a version mentioning Margaret. That's not to say P.G. Wodehouse didn't do it. Given her profile, it seems entirely possible Margaret Viner might have been paired with an ocean liner as one of the top things in London in 1935. Or it could have been that if she saw the show, which seems likely given it ran the rest of the year, the lyrics could have been tweaked in her honour the night she was in the audience. After all, the show was called Anything Goes. By September 1935, Margaret had finished up writing for Smith's Weekly and gone on to model for British designer Norman Hartnell, who was London's answer to Jean Patou. Already celebrated for clothing the likes of Vivian Lee and Marlena Dietrich, Hartnell had just gone to greater fame and acclaim when Lady Alice Montague Douglas Scott commissioned him to design her dress for her wedding to Prince Henry, the Duke of Gloucester, and also those to be worn by her bridesmaids, Princesses Elizabeth and Margaret. Although she quickly became Hartnell's favourite model, it was a short engagement because in mid-October 1935, a little over 18 months after she'd left Sydney, Margaret Viner was heading home. She left England and went to France and, according to records found at Ancestry.com.au, joined the ocean liner Strathhead in Marseille, sailing for Australia. Stepping back onto home soil in Fremantle, dressed in a chic green and white linen sunsuit and smoking a cigarette in a long ivory holder, Margaret looked every inch the famous international model she'd become. Coincidentally, the date of her return was the 3rd of December 1935, her 21st birthday. Margaret Viner had come of age, and she was just one year into the decade of her life she hoped would be the best. So far, her 20s had been brilliant. But long before she was 30, Margaret Viner's life, like just about everyone else's, would be turned upside down by the Second World War. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The second part of this episode, Australia's first supermodel, which has been made with the kind help of Margaret Viner's family, will be released soon, so make sure you're subscribed so you get it as soon as it's out. Until then, if you'd like to see photos of Margaret Viner and learn more about other Forgotten Australia episodes, visit ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.